Remain standing and take your Bibles now, and let's turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. We will read the first 11 verses. 1 Samuel 17. Now hear God's word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, or as my margin says, approximately nine feet, nine inches, which is quite tall. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be your servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Grass withers, the flower fades, God's word stands forever. Please welcome Rick Anderson to their pulpit this morning. Good morning on this Lord's Day, and uh, I welcome you from the saints at Faith Community Church in Oxnard, California. We, uh, some of you may not know where Oxnard is. We're about half an hour south of Santa Barbara on the west coast in the south. Um, so um, uh, Steve has come and preached at our church several times, and we've had uh, that blessing, and so this is the first time that uh, I've by God's grace, been able to come and visit you, and I'm grateful because we, we pray for the church as one of our sister churches, and Steve and I have a long uh, relationship going so far back, I can't even know when it began, but that often happens with friendships, and uh, the uh, blessing of that has been uh, mine, and so prayerfully, uh, you may be blessed by the word of God this morning. Uh, Stan is read for you out of 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I want to, I want to consider something that I'm sure Ted has already uh, taught, in fact, in the Sunday school class, taking the, them through the life of David in 1 and 2 Samuel, past, uh, section of scripture that I really love. But I, I want to come to this section because it, it, it is an interesting section. It's very well known, uh, David and Goliath. And I want to make some observations about it. It's a, it's a singular account. Uh, I, I would call this the man of God and his God, as we would consider really the whole chapter. And I, I want to make some observations about it. For 40 days and for really 40 nights, the champion of the Philistines, Goliath, has come into the valley of Elah to taunt and challenge the armies of the living God. And for those 40 days, the armies have lined up on, uh, against one another, but there has been no battle. There has simply been the rattling of swords, the standing on the sides, but the knees are knocking with the children of Israel. It is a stalemated army. The enemy of the people of God has come down into that valley, and he has challenged them to bring one man, 
a heavyweight fight of the world, we might say. And whoever wins, he himself says, will become the servant of the other, which is always an interesting thing to me, that Goliath would come down and call out the terms of the battle. Uh, I'm surprised why not five of those Israelites go down and knock off his head, but nobody did. Everybody's scared to death. Everybody is stalemated. Everybody's marked by fear and panic. And that's the situation that we come to when David is introduced into the text, or at least into the narrative, in verse 12. Uh, and this is, where, this is where I want to begin. It's interesting, 1 Samuel 17, we would say, tells us near the end of it about David killing Goliath. And we are all familiar with that. But what is interesting to me is that really there are there's 48 verses before that takes place. 48 verses of, uh, of David's dealings on the way to kill Goliath. And I think they're instructive. These, uh, and in fact, I, I believe they're instructive for our own faith as we would consider how we would stand before the enemies uh, that face us. But really even more so, why was it that it was David of all men that stood out that day, came out of the ranks uh, of Israel? while everybody else's knees were knocking. What was it about him? And I, uh, why did he act differently from everyone else? What moved him? What motivated him? And really it's going to be simply this, that he thought about his God differently than everyone else thought about their God. We will see that as we go through this. But what I want to do is put it maybe in a more practical way. Not all of us are going to be called to stand for God in the heavyweight championship fight of the world. We're not necessarily going to be standing on those public, uh, dramatic front lines, so to speak, where it is us against them in a, in a very visible and significant way with regard to the children of God. We don't often will find ourselves by our callings in that situation. But I submit to you that David himself won several battles on the way to taking off the head of Goliath. What I want to do is open it up because there are, I submit to you there were five battles that he faced on the way to take off his head. And those were what I would call the battles of everyday life. And I'm going to open it up that way and, and, and seek to open up the, uh, uh, this passage that you might appreciate it even more. It, it, in one sense, the taking off of the head of Goliath as we come through this, was really kind of anticlimactical. Uh, really, the, all of the, the significant battles oftentimes are not those big ones where we either stand or fall before some great enemy. It's some of these other battles that we ourselves encounter all the time and whereby we need, as, as David had, the grace of God. As you know, already he's been anointed by Samuel. Already the calling of God is upon him, but he himself awaits that calling. And it is in, in the fulfillment of a, something even more plain than that that he brings and he comes to this scene. So I want to open this up considering what I would just call those five battles that David fought. Five battles that we ourselves fight, not heavyweight fights, but the daily battles of life and the perspective that we have of God himself. So let me pray and uh, open up these things. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the fullness of them in every way. We thank you, Lord God, that through them you reveal to us men and women of flesh and blood like us. Lord, people of weakness and yet people of faith. And Lord God, our desire is that our faith would grow, that our faith would be strong, that we would be bold, that we would be courageous, yea, to stand, if it need be, before the greatest enemies. But, Father, we thank you for those who have gone before us, and you have given us the scriptures that they might give us that instruction and be examples to us who live in this day. We thank you, Lord God, that you've given to us the Spirit. And so, Father, as we come to hear these things, Lord, we need not listen with despair, but hope, Lord, and confidence and faith in you. And so will you give me the, the ability and by your spirit and the grace to be able to make these things plain and clear 
for your glory, that we, all of us, might live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Battle number one. It's what I call the plainness of the home. The plainness, the commonness of the home. This is the great battle. This is the one that really we see in verses 12 through 19, as I would call them. Notice now, David, verse 12, was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons, and Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. And the three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. His three older brothers, whose names are given to us in verse 13. And David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David, but David not on the battlefield, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. When the great battle came that day, David himself was not on the battlefield. David himself was doing what he had been taught to do ever since his youth. And that was to tend his father's sheep. A rather common job. A rather common occupation. But here he is when his brothers are in that place of activity, that place of active engagement as it were. We find David doing what he had been doing all his life. Now let me just make an observation. F.B. Meyer makes it for us. There are some who think that the loftiest attainments of the spiritual life are incompatible with the daily grind of common life. Get me out of the house. Get me out of the home. Get me out from under these ordinary, mundane, common tasks and duties of life, and then I will do great things for God. In other words, there is this tendency indeed to look at kind of our mundane things as really just simply that, really nothing things in terms of the service of God himself. Get me from these menial and common tasks and I will do noble things. Like Jesse's older older sons, we're serving in the army. And David's just serving at home, serving his dad. In fact, as we shall see, David comes to the battlefield, as we are told, because his dad says, Son, go take some food to your brothers and find out how they're doing. We would call that a gopher. Go take the stuff and find out. No, you're not sent on any big task. You're basically a servant of your father to find out how your brothers are faring in the task. And this is David. In one sense, if there would be a temptation to to disdain that common work, it probably might be with David because already now he had the anointing of God on him. Already that, that calling was before him that one day he would be the anointed king of Israel. How much more he himself would want to go to that, go to that battlefield with his brothers. But he remains here, as we see, uh, very simply faithful in those common household tasks. And this, this is the difference I submit to you. David was faithful in the small things. David was faithful in the common things. And what we understand oftentimes as we read the scriptures, we look at the histories of the, of, of the men of God, is that most of the things they learned, they learned in solitude before God himself. Most of the Psalms themselves were composed in the sheepfold, in his growing years, in the task of doing his common duties. It was in the conflict of those things. In fact, we will see as this narrative goes, it's what he learned in the sheepfold that prepared him for the ministry and for the leadership that he would have with the anointing of God. This is what impresses me. He did not disdain the small things. He would be faithful in the small things first. And I think this is really, really the test This is the test for us. It's the test for us to fall into a despair in terms of the common task. Especially, I I imagine, uh, above all, probably women in terms of the household duties. The task of of washing husband's clothes, doing the dishes, or, or whatever the task may be, while the husband goes and carries out his calling, which has maybe more notoriety or more kudos, more back padding than ever a wife ever receives. 
And then to disdain the common task and what's taken place there. Or maybe the young person himself looking, hoping someday to maybe get beyond those kinds of things other than the duties which he finds himself or herself assigned to. No, this is, this is where David learned his better lessons. This is one of those occasions where David, in terms of carrying out his duties, now is going to take the food to the front line. I want to be on the front line. That's, that's the temptation. And the reality, isn't it, is where are the front lines? It's hard to define where the front lines are, but I would say basically they're right in front of us all the time. How are we going to make a faithful response to the living God in terms of the common tasks that we're given and learning to be faithful in the small things, knowing that God in his mercy and by his wisdom will give to us the greater? But here it was in these very common things. David did not have to press the calling of God upon his life here. David would come to the place where he would come to national notoriety because he was simply carrying out the task his father had given him to do. And where he was faithful in that task, God himself would see that he would come to the place and fulfill the calling that God wanted him in his own life. We don't have to be patient. Well, we have to be patient, but we really have to be faithful. Faithful in the common, everyday callings of life. The plainness of the home, the plainness of the job, the plainness of schooling, or the task we have. And this is the battleground. This is the battleground that is shrewd with many casualties uh, of people themselves stepping out of the realm of faithfulness in the task they have. A discontentment with regard to that task, not willing to exercise a patient waiting upon God to be faithful in that task and trusting him that he would direct their steps. It's the battle of the plainness of the home. And we see David here in that calling, carrying out uh, what will bring him to the battlefield. In fact, that's what it did. It brought him to the place of battle. And so I want to go in the second place to what I would call battle number two, the panic of the people. The panic of the people. David himself takes the ten cuts of cheese uh, and to go out to look for the welfare of his brothers. And so we're told in verse 20, he arose early in the morning. He left the flock with a keeper. Notice his, notice his diligence again, which the inspired writer gives, that David himself, now going to that front line, still thinks about what he's supposed to do, tend the sheep, care for the sheep. Took the supplies, went as Jesse had commanded him in faithfulness to his father, again fulfilling just the common duties. We have one who came and did the very same thing, one who lived the common life, one who lived in relative uh, obscurity for 30 years the son of God himself stooping from heaven as it were having no name up in Nazareth of Galilee and submitting to his father and mother and and in in his own humanity his real humanity submitting to his mother and father in the common and plain tasks he himself in his own humanity learning the nature of submission even as he himself would be fully submissive to the greatest extent as the son of God to the task that God would give him when he would be anointed with that ministry to go forward. This is, this is where David comes. He goes out, it says, to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array shouting the war cry. That, that, that's always so interesting to me in, this, in this, this account because everybody's shouting the war cry. Everybody's coming into church and singing the songs, the war songs, the onward Christian soldier, but nobody's fighting. The army is stalemated when he comes there. Nobody is moved toward the challenge of the Philistines. Verse 21, the Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper, ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. And as he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines and he spoke these same words and David heard them. I defy the armies of Saul to find a man who will come out. 
and fight me. He heard the defiance. He heard the arrogance of the Philistine. And he heard the words that they had been hearing for 40 days. And then it says this, So also did all the men of Israel, verse 25, when all the men of Israel saw the man... It says they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man? And Stan's already told us he was nine and a half feet tall. He was girded in metal. He was armed to the hilt. Uh, He was daunting. He was intimidating. And now it appears that this intimidation over the period of 40 days had settled into the very ranks of Israel that they themselves, he had a, a gigantic proportion besides what their eyes saw. Nobody would budge. He's coming up to defy Israel, they say, verse 25. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and, and give him his daughter and make his Father's house free in Israel. He'll have royalty and tax-free status. Somebody come out of the ranks. Nobody comes. There's nothing on earth that will move the armies of Israel. Nothing from the fear that is settled in. But notice what David says. Verse 26. You see, the armies were intimidated. David himself was indignant. David spoke to the men who were standing by. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And that is, there is the, there is the first These are the first words of David in this account. And and the first thing that we see now is David himself. It is his perspective of what is taking place. This is not mano a mano. This is a man who has come into the valley and he himself has rebuked and challenged David's God. The one whom David calls the living God. This is what... This is all about to David. David, this was not about David, and it will never be about David. And that's the one thing we understand about 17, 1 Samuel 17. David is not going into this battle and will not take off the head of Goliath for his name's sake or for his glory, for I submit to you that after doing that, had providence so ordained it, he would have gone back to the sheepfold and been happy as a clam. No, God himself begins to work, but it's not for his name. It's for the name of his God. The God of Israel was a God of the past. They could talk about what God had done in in Egypt. They could talk about what God had done in the wilderness. They could talk about what God had done in the days of Joshua. But when it comes to their own present existence and the enemy that faces them, they themselves have an absentee God. They could talk about a God who would one day bring a Messiah and a champion, but they themselves, in terms of their present reality, God himself was absent, or in David Wells' words, he was weightless. He carried no weight. He carried no influence. They themselves basically saw themselves as utterly helpless. Have you seen this man? What do you think David is saying? Have you heard your God? Have you seen your God? It's like Caleb and Joshua when the spies came back. And those spies said, we went into the land where you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. It's everything that you told us it was, Moses, but... The cities are fortified, they're large, and moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. We will become their prey. And it was upon hearing that that Caleb and Joshua themselves tear their garments, right? And they said, if the Lord is pleased with us, he'll bring us into this land. Do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the lands, for they shall be removed. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. 
And, and so here is the tendency of, of the public panic having set in. But David himself rises above the public panic of looking at men and what they're able to do. And he sees rather the greater God. Spurgeon used to say, he says, you uh, use the illustration of, he says, those little, those little yappy dogs that are always barking at you all the time. And they come running at you, barking, barking. And then when you kind of approach them, they go running back to their master's foot. And, and then when they ride at the master's foot, they keep barking. Yap, yap, yap. Because that's where all their courage is. Right at the foot of their master. And that is what Spurgeon said. Listen, at the foot of our master, we can be bold. We can be courageous. He said, he said listen, if I preach sermons that build men up, you'll be cowards. If I preach sermons that build God up, you'll be bold. And this is what made all the difference. Men were looking at men. Men were thinking of themselves simply as men without any means. Men who could not be motivated by other men. But here is David himself now understanding that there is a present God. There is a living God. There is an active God in Israel. Because David himself, from the common place in which he had served, knew the presence of that living God, and we shall see him declare that a little bit later again. This was not an absent God. And this, so he doesn't magnify his enemies. He himself has a magnified view of God himself, and this is what motivates him. What motivates him is not money or prestige or anything else. It is the glory and honor of his God. The God who has loved him, the God who has strengthened him, the God who has helped him, the God who has anointed him, and the God who will call and direct his days. It was a, this was a God who meant everything to him. And this is what it was all about, was the honor and glory of this God. He's not going to wait to try to whip them up in, into a frenzy. And I am sure he was discouraged with them. But he won what I would call the battle of mediocrity, the, the battle of being content with the community standard and being influenced by the things which cause the community itself to be fearful. Do not fear, says, says the prophet, what men fear. And what do we know? Listen, fear God and you need fear nothing else. And this was what was in David's mind here. It was this belief in God's presence and in his power and in his willingness to act, his knowledge indeed of God's holiness and hating when anyway it was offended. And so this is where he goes. He himself will rise above that. He, he will rise above the community standard. He, 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 he is determined in a certain sense that whether men will move for God or not, he will. And so he himself, we might say, is zealous. There was one again who lived in that relative obscurity for those 30 years. And then as he began his ministry under the anointing of the Spirit, Jesus of Nazareth, what did his disciples know about him that zeal for God marked him and this is what David has. He has this zeal itself that would for prefigure the zeal of the son of David, Jesus Christ. Let me just ask you, what does your thought of God, what does your understanding of God, how does it influence the way that you look at the challenges you face, the difficulties that you face, the enemies that you face? The fears that, you, that we have or, or the fears that are being engendered or promoted in our own society and culture during this time. Where does God fit in with all of these things? How you think of them and how you look at them. But especially how you think of God. Because this is all the difference. This is all the difference. It was the glory of God himself and his glory alone that moved David toward Goliath. It was the offended glory of God that he himself is seeking to vindicate. It is God and his glory, his name, and he would not let God be defamed by a spineless, paralyzed army when the God who is over that army himself is being defamed. 
This is all, in fact, this seems to be the repeated theme through this chapter again. This defying the armies of the living God, the living God. Is he living? Is he living and active? Is he not just simply like maybe the Queen of England, just simply on the mantle, some kind of memorial piece? Is this God that we're talking about, this God that he himself worships, is this God living and active in our own lives and finding ourselves recognizing his own work in us? That's battle, battle number two, the panic of the people. David overcame it. David overcame all of the, uh, of the public muttering and hesitation. It became a matter of the glory of his God. Battle number three. I call it the provocation of a brother. The provocation of a brother. David himself says, you know, in verse 26, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in accord with this word saying, thus it will be done for the man who kills him. And, and so his brother, his older brother, his eldest brother, Eliab himself, hears him speaking as it were to the men, what shall be done? Because the reality is nobody was doing anything. The shepherd boy is there in the midst, maybe, maybe 18 to 19 years old, in the midst of them. And in his little shepherd gear, interfering indeed with the battle and the war cries, and, and maybe catch, not casting any kind of reproach upon the armies except for the fact, who is going to stand up for the living God? And notice what he does. Notice, here comes the provocation. Sometimes the battles come from the side we don't expect. Sometimes we get attacked from friendly fronts. Sometimes we get sideswiped when we're not expecting it in terms of our lives. And so here, come, here it comes this way. Eliab, his older brother, 28, here's what he said to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he says... Now, if you have brothers and sisters, you probably wouldn't say, this sounds just like home. Here's this older brother. His older brother heard when he spoke, and then he says, I, why have you come down? I mean, you get the cynicism, you get the sarcasm, why have you come down? Well, the reality is because dad sent me. But why have you come down? And with whom have you left, notice, those Few sheep in the wilderness. Why are you here? And, and, and what about the few little mutton that you take care of? He disdains with his, with his little posturing right there as a, as a soldier of Saul standing on the battleground. Begins to demean his brother with regard to the task that he'd been sent on to, to help and find out about his welfare. And he demeans the very task which he himself has been engaged in taking care of the sheep whereby he learned of God. He demeans him. He says, I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. You have come down, and this is the most amazing statement, you've come down to see the battle. What battle? The, the armies have been lined up for 40 days. Nobody's budged an inch because one big man has questioned everybody and everybody's stopped. You've come down to see the battle. Buddy, your head's screwed on wrong. I mean, you are crazy. If David was all about himself at this point, he would have responded in kind. Who do you think you are, big brother? I'm here because dad told me. Notice what David does, and I love this. I love this. He says, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? Being reviled, he doesn't do what? He doesn't revile. No, he's like the son of God from Calvary's cross. He doesn't revile. What have I done now? Then he turned away from him. Everybody loves a fight. David doesn't want to fight for a fight's sake. David isn't going to get into a fight with his brother. Is that a lesson for the church? 
Is that a lesson for the church with regard to these kinds of things? Why wouldn't you get in a fight with your brother? Why wouldn't you engage? Why wouldn't you engage your brother? Because the fact is, while we're just doing our little squabbling about who's doing what and where, there's a giant intimidating the armies of the living God in the Valley of Elah, and nobody's doing anything. There's an enemy to be faced, and what are we doing arguing and disputing with one another? There's greater issues at stake. And this is, what, this is the battle again that oftentimes we get caught up in. We ourselves get caught up in a battle with one another over the trivial matters which really aren't eternal. When there's enemies outside, where the armies, uh, where the truth of God itself is making no forward advance, and we are just standing, knee-knocking, talking and disputing about what we're doing and who's doing what, or maybe all of the issues with regard to whatever they might be. I mean, this is one of those times, right? Brothers vaccinated, mask wearing, social distancing, whatever it is. Battle lines drawn in the church. I am... I mean, if, if we think the little squabble between Eliab and David was ridiculous, beloved, what do we do? We, we have better things to do than to have family quarrels. And David here himself, this is, this is the surprise attack. This is the one that comes from a friendly front. And David himself in wisdom turns away from it. He doesn't engage in the squabble. And he wins the better battle. You, Ground is lost by distracted saints. Ground is lost by squabbles. Already, already the armies of the Philistines are in the land of Judah. Already the enemy is taking ground and you can't fight because you're, because you're squabbling with one another. This is, this is, be prepared for ridicule. Be prepared that if you yourself stand for the living God, be prepared if the greater issues with regard to the kingdom, with regard to the, uh, the gospel, with regard to the advance of the church and holiness and all of those things, and that zeal begins to mark you, that you may get surprised and sideswiped by friendly fronts. That you will find yourself, maybe people themselves, lukewarm, not liking the heat that you're putting off. And oftentimes that happens. David won the battle. He won the battle of self-control. And that's when we lose a lot, especially in terms of friendly fights. One said this, this is, this is the spirit of Christ in one, to bear with unfailing meekness. The attacks of malice and envy. To bear with unfailing meekness the attacks of malice and envy. Not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good, to suffer wrong, to possess one's soul in patience, to keep the mouth with a bridle, to pass unruffled and composed through a very cyclone of unkindliness and representation. This is the character of one who is marked by the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of God rested upon, the anointing rested upon David for sure. The, the, the exercise of that in terms of leadership of a nation had not yet fallen upon his shoulders yet. But that very Spirit himself that was preparing him for leadership manifested in terms of self-control. And not getting involved in the squabbles of the brothers and sisters. Battle number four. Battle number four, the perspective of the king. The perspective of the king, verses 31 and through 40. We have this, this word, verse 31, when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and Saul sent for him. And, and David said to Saul, see, I like that, Saul sent for him. He heard there was a rabble rouser. There was somebody asking, you know, a, a, a question all it was, he said to Eliab. And yet the question now gets Saul calling him. And Saul calls for him. But it's interesting, the first words we hear are not the words of Saul, but the words of David. And what are they? They are words of assurance. I mean, this is the, this is the boldness of the man of God. 
with God with him. Notice he says, David says to Saul, the, the, the greeting he gives is, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Listen, I'll go. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. I mean, not only is he says, don't fear the problem, I'll try to deal with it. I mean, it's a glorious thing, but now we have the perspective of the king. We have, we have as it were, the perspective of human wisdom in this matter now. And this is the, what we ourselves now begin to encounter. It's the battle of human wisdom with regard to, with regard to our own abilities, with regard to what we do and what, how we carry out our callings. Notice this, because he begins to tell him, he challenges him. He says, basically, son, you don't have the resume He says, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight, for you are but a youth. He has been a warrior from his youth. David says, you're absolutely right. I am not, I haven't been trained as a warrior. You got that part of the resume right. But let me give you the rest of the resume of my youth. By the way, a youth spent tending sheep. Notice what he says. You're right, king. You know what? I've never fought an uncircumcised Philistine. No. All I've done is fought lions and bears when they've had food in their mouth and it's warm blood going down their throat. No, I haven't fought an enraged Philistine. I have gone and I have fought irrational, instinctive, mighty beasts. I've grabbed them by the hair of their chinny-chin-chin, and I've pulled the sheeps out of their mouth. Isn't that what he says? Look at this. No, he says, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came, I mean, come on, folks. My little kids in Santa Barbara, they have the little Santa Barbara Zoo for kids. And all the little ones, you know, they just love to see all the gorillas and the giraffes and everything else. And there's one place where the lion is. And, and he's, in, he's in a cage, but there's, there's glass right there. And their little faces are just peeled right there to the glass. They just want to see that lion. You know, their little faces get right there. And then the lion roars. And all those little things just fall back, frightened as they can be. I mean, just the roar of the lion is so intimidating that the little creatures are scared to death. You know, and it is intimidating. You know, I mean, there is nothing more intimidating than a bear and a lion. There is nothing stronger, in a sense, than a bear and a lion. And David said, this is what I've done, and I've done it when they're having lunch. And I'm taking their lunch out of their mouth. This is the, this is the thing. It says, yes, your servant, uh, I risk, when, when a lion or bear came, I took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him, I attacked him, I rescued it from his mouth. When he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard, struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear and the uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God, the issue of my survival is not the matter. The issue is, yes, God himself, I recognize, has given me opportunity to manifest courage and boldness in the common task. I've learned something. I've learned something. In fact, he's not boasting about the fact that he can beat lions and bears and nobody else does because the next line of verse 27 says, this is why he is so moved. It's not because I'm so good. Verse 27, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. This wasn't my hand that did that. It was God's hand that enabled me to do that. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm trusting in him. And I'm telling you why now I'm so incensed when I hear God himself defamed by that Philistine because he's dared to do what a lion and bear would never do. And that is to blaspheme and curse God. And he has done that. 
And now I must myself move against him. There is no way that I can stand now this God himself who delivered me to stand still when I hear this deliverer, this savior, this helper, this keeper of everything that I've ever done in my life now to be defamed. You see, he understands the mercy that God has shown to him during the exercise of his common task. He's upheld me. He's enabled me to endure. And so now when I hear he is defamed and his honor is at stake, how can anybody in their right mind knowing this God stand still? And so that's what I'm telling you. You see, you see, all of it comes together. All of it comes together in terms of the calling of the common calling, in terms of the exercise of his activities and faithfulness in it. And in it, he learned of his God. He learned of the power of his God. He learned of the glory of his God. And now, when his God is defamed, he will not and cannot stand still and lays his own life, as it were, out for the sake of that God. Beloved, Who has delivered us? Who has delivered us by his mighty power and strength, even our Savior Jesus Christ, that whether we live or whether we die, we live and die for him? This isn't a matter, as Jesus said, discipleship of saving myself. No, it's giving myself over for him who spared not himself for me, that I might give him glory. See, this is where it all goes. This is not just simply a heavyweight fight at the time. This is simply the honor of God. And this is how he lives. This is how he thinks. And beloved, there is no reason why we should not, in our own right minds, think similarly of our God and his honor. Well, I don't think... Saul got the point. Son, you're just not equipped. Well, I think he was probably, okay, maybe you are. You sure got the zeal for it, son. But you know what? You still don't have the equipment. Notice what he does. This is good old Saul again. Okay, well, first of all, this is good old Saul. Go and may the Lord be with you. (laughs) Okay, son, go out and do it. I'm sure he had no expectations with regard to this boy at all, but... Notice what he says, but he doesn't want him to go and get absolutely slaughtered, so he says in verse 38, David clothed David with his garments. Now, that's really interesting. The tallest guy in Israel was Saul. I mean, head and shoulders above everybody else. And I don't think David, I think he was a handsome, ruddy guy, but I don't think he was taller than anybody. So Saul says, put these on. And I, I, my little mind's I mean, it says, says, it says he, he gave him his garments, put a bronze helmet on his head, and clothed him with armor. And I have this picture of, of like the little boy who just admires his dad and goes into the closet and puts his suit on. And it's just hanging over his whole body. And, you know, and maybe he puts on his hat, and his hat just covers his ears and his eyes and everything else. And he's got this sword, and it's just kind of dragging along. And, and you've got this picture of a man. What would we say? Well, it's, it's good equipment but it's bad equipment for that boy it just doesn't fit you understand and that's the whole thing it just doesn't fit listen the world tries to tell you what will work what will fit listen go go with the calling that God has given you go with the gifts and graces and natural gifts that God has given you use what God has given you there is no standard equipment in God's army there is no standard gear they're, they're basically, this is, you know, just try to use a little pragmatism, a little wisdom, and do those things. No, we go in the experience and in the equipment that God himself has given to us. He picks up the tools of his trade. What does he have? A stick and a sling. He takes that up, doesn't he? Notice David says in his wisdom, I can't go with these. Beloved, we can't go. We can't go with what the world tells us to do. The world will say, listen, church, are you kidding me that you're spending your time talking about a crucified Savior when the world itself seems to be on fire? And this is what you're going to do. You're going to spend your time talking about maybe uh, arranging the chairs on the Titanic. We're saying get off. 
you know, where you need to come to Christ, we begin to speak these things. Listen, here's our tools right here. This is the only one he's put in our hand. The other one that he's given is his spirit. And he says, now take my word and preach my word. Now read my word and, and, and seek that you yourself might grow in the understanding of it and in the practice of it. This is what I'm calling you to do. And that works. That works. Yeah. It does eternal things. It changes a soul. It transforms a heart. It prepares us for glory. No, this is, the, this is the excellence here. This is the, some of you will be able to go places that other people don't get to go and speak the gospel. Some of you have, have you, you, you wives and you moms, you yourself in that common calling are sitting there and you yourselves with your labors and example are giving them example of your submission as you render it to your husband, of your labors as you render it as unto the Lord in those common things, and as you yourself out of wisdom speak and encourage and teach them, you are doing the greatest work there is. Instructing a soul, teaching a soul. Whether you're a dad or a brother or sister, you can encourage one another. This is, the, this is the wonderful aspect. Notice what David did, though. He took his stick, and, he, and, he, and it says he took up five stones. Do you know what the five stones represent? A lack of presumption. A lack of presumption. You know, David, you know why he took five? Because maybe the first one would miss. I mean, here's a man who basically takes the things that God has given him and is willing to use them all. However, God will be pleased to use it. So he goes in that equipment. Listen, world is, the world is so pragmatic. The world says, do it this way, do it this way. We have our ideas. Listen, the ideas of the world, just like the world itself, are passing away and they're feeble and frail. Nothing stands but the counsel of God and the wisdom of God. The word of God by the spirit of God. Well, finally, battle number five. I call it the pride of the infidel, the pride of the wicked, the pride of the enemies of God, the pride of those who themselves know better, those who are full of their own worldly wisdom or their own self-understanding, of their own way, of their own strength. Now he finally comes face to face in this battle, not with the pragmatism of the world, the provocation of a brother, the panic of his own nation, or, or, or even the plainness of his home, but now he comes face to face with that enemy. But this is where everything was taking him anyway. The minute that, that, that Philistine went into that valley and uttered that cry and it entered the ears of David, that man from that point on was basically a dead man. Because the honor of God was at stake. And David was going to that man. David is going to fight. See, you, this is what I want you to understand. He's not, fighting in, he's not fighting because somebody's paying him. He's not fighting in a peak of passion all of a sudden aroused except for the honor of God. He himself is going sober-minded. He, he is going not to get some kind of political advantage to get the kingship over uh, Israel from Saul. He's, he's not interested in any of those things. Not at this point. This is the highlight of his youth, as it were. This is the culmination of that youth. This is the glorious preparation of God for him. This is a glorious scene. And as I said, I, I think probably he himself would have gone back to the sheepfold after this if, were it not for, this, for the, the fame that he got. It's interesting, isn't it, then? This is what we find as, as we go. Verse 41. We're told, that, we're told in verse 40 at the very end that David approached the Philistine. Can you imagine this after 40 days? 40 days and you've issued the challenge and all of a sudden you look down or you look out and you see coming out of, the, of that whole paralyzed bunch, you, you see some kind of, you, you see a teenage kid coming out and, and ruddy, and, and, and not necessarily impressive at all. No armor. No sword. In fact, no shield bearer. Nothing. I would imagine that maybe, maybe at that point, Goliath says, oh, the, that's the armor bearer. The, the other guy is coming. The other guy is going to fight me. No, it's, it's the ruddy kid coming down into the valley. 
into that valley. And I am sure that Goliath himself was disappointed after 40 days to say, this is what I'm going to fight. Notice what he says. Then the Philistine came on, approached David with this shield bearer in front of him. Verse 41, 42, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. I wanted a real fight. And now I've got this little bone to play with. That's what he says. He looked, he disdained him for he is but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? That you come to me with sticks and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come to me and I will give you, I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. You're going to be breakfast when I'm done for the birdies. That's, it, it's one thing to stand across a valley and, and shake your knees at an enemy. It's another one to go right down into the very face of it and feel the hot breath of his arrogance. And that is what David is doing now. He's going right into the face of the enemy. And he's hearing all of the disdain of that enemy. Does David run? Does David buck? buckle? No, anything else rather than that. Notice what David says. In verse 45, he says, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. Just a note, David knew his enemy. David knew he was big. David knew he was armed. David knew everything about him. David was not playing any games. David does not go into this blind to the facts. Now this faith looks the facts right in the face and sees them, but it sees the greater fact of the reality of the power and honor of God himself at stake. No, he sees, he knows what he is. You come to me with all your armament, he says, but I come to you. In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. Basically what he says is, yeah, I come, but you're surrounded. And you're under now the judgment of God. And, but, but David has a purpose. And notice what his purpose is. Verse 46, without without stuttering without mumbling this day the Lord will deliver you up because that's what the Lord has always been doing for me he's been delivering up the lions and the bears he has been delivering up his grace and mercy helping me to carry out my task and now when you come and offend that God he will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down. And it's interesting. And by the way, I'll remove your head from you. Can you imagine how agitated Goliath must have been? I mean, it's probably all the rage that is pent up in that nine and a half foot giant is just trembling while David speaks. And I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistine this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. Now this is why, he says, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about when you stand still and do not move, when nobody is concerned for the honor of the living God, that nobody even thinks that there is a God in Israel. I want you to know that there is a God in Israel. I want all the earth to know that there is a God in Israel. And I'm willing to act and live and die if necessary for that sake. I want all the earth to know, but notice he says something else. And this, again, just pictures in my mind. I want all the earth to know, and then all this assembly will know. And he points back to his own army that all you might know. That the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Glory! God is being honored at that point magnified. The very issue at stake is now being made known. This is, this is in one sense kind of a precursor to, to that account in 1 Kings 17 of another high noon 
When Elijah the prophet says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If God be God, follow him. If Baal be God, follow him. And that great high noon when he himself stood, Elijah, stood for God and magnified him in that stance. David basically is telling Goliath, Goliath, you're about to become a divine object lesson for history. In fact, they'll be talking about you in Trinity Bible Church in 2021 one day. They'll be talking about you in Sunday school classes when this account is read. But it's all for the sake of this, that you may know that there is a God in Israel. There is a God amongst his people. There is a God who works, a living God. We have a God who has done great things in the past. And indeed, we'll remember that at the table. We'll remember the redemption that Christ himself has purchased by his own blood. And we will, we're looking to a God of the future who is coming in glory. Jesus Christ himself crucified, risen and ascended and coming in the triune glory of the Father and the angels and his own glory. But also that Christ still reigns and is present with us by the Spirit of God. He is in his church. We serve a living God. How, how frail would, a, would the weapons of David appear to this arrogant giant? And how ugly and disgusting must the bloody cross appear? As foolishness, as it were, to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jews. With that sling, with that sling, David conquered Goliath. In fact, now we get to the story you all know and saw in the flannel graphs. All right, here it is. Then it happened, verse 48. I just like that. Then it happened. What? What was bound to happen? The minute David heard that voice. Then it happened. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David ran. And, the da- and David put his hand into his bag, took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling and a stone. Thus the Son of God prevailed over the principalities and the powers over sin, death, hell, and Satan, not in the power of mighty returning strength, but in the weakness, his own weakness of giving up himself unto death on the cross, prevailed. The foolishness to the world, but David prevailed. Christ prevailed. The son of David, the Lord of David. And this is the, this is the glorious account. Here it is. Israel themselves took the victory and won the battle. Because one just kind of one Yehu, one Yehu had concern for the honor of God and thought about him more than the rest of the flock. May God give us such faith. God has given us enough revelation. We've got more of it than David ever had. And we've got a revelation of a greater deliverance and a greater hope than any of those Old Testament saints have. It is before our eyes, this Christ himself who gave up himself for us, that we might live for him and die for him. And so, beloved, what, what causes us to hesitate? What causes us to, 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 to falter and, and to stutter in, in a certain sense? Is it not that we ourselves need to know more and more and think more and more and live more and more consciously on the realities of the glory of our God himself, the deliverance he has wrought, the the things he is doing, the grace he has given, and that we ourselves might be an army again that doesn't just knock our knees, that we are not intimidated by what intimidates men, that we ourselves are not embroiled in, in, in side disputes and sidebars about things that have no particular interest or even eternal matter at all, that we ourselves would would take up the callings that God has given us, those very callings that, in other words, the world often despises, and yet we ourselves in those callings fulfill God's purpose for us and so honor him who sees what we do for his sake. 
May God give us these things as we seek to serve him, as we remember Christ crucified for us. May we live for his glory in Jesus' name. Our Father in heaven, Father, will you give us grace? You allow us to see the acts of the old saints. And Lord, it it is wonderful and it's stirring in great measure to see the patterns of their lives. But God, we, we desire not to be spectators to other men's or women's faith. Lord God, our desire is that our own faith would become more and more strong, established, confident, bold, glad, trusting, reliant, seeking, comforted by you. Oh Lord, thank you that you've given us deliverance. Lord, and thank you even as we remember not only that deliverance which was accomplished 2,000 years ago on Golgotha's gallows, but God, day after day, by your spirit and by your kindness, day after day, you multiply your mercies to us. Day after day, you are giving us provision. Day after day, you're giving us guidance. Day after day, Lord, even though not having a fire by night or a cloud by day, you are directing us by your word and spirit. And Lord God, you are giving us help. You are sustaining us. Lord, it is all to your glory. And Lord, may you be the one. May it be your glory, your greatness. Lord, may that be the great fact of our life that influences every action of our life. Oh, Father, you are worthy. You who sent the Son that we might glorify you, may we live for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.